0: Well good morning, let me uh, add my welcome to you this morning Uh, I think as Russell indicated, uh, my name is Mark Badley I'm one of the uh, elders that hangs out over in the Kapalabar uh, side of things and uh, my task to take us through uh, what is a fairly formidable passage this morning Uh, So let's pray and uh, ask for God's help as uh, we uh, hear it and reflect upon it together Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, listen together to this word that the Lord Jesus spoke to those that were there, a word that speaks not just to them but echoes out to us all, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear, that we would be able to hear and to see Jesus for who he is and what it is that he and only he can offer, and that we would see ourselves as we really are, and why it is that we need what Jesus has to offer. We ask that you would move us to the point where we take on Jesus' words and live by them, and in that find life and freedom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we have this morning touches on an issue that is just kind of perennial in human life. It's just there kind of sitting in the background so often, And it goes almost to the heart of the human condition and the issues surrounding our relationship with God. It's an argument between Jesus and those Jews who were watching and listening to him at this point in time who weren't believing in him. And it flows out of the words that you find that Jesus says there at the start in verses 31 and 32. Let me read them to you again because everything kind of hangs out from this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus here is talking to those Jews who, in the previous section, as they reflected upon the miracles that John has been recording, the signs that point to who Jesus is, and as they've been hearing Jesus' words, they've come to put their trust in him towards the end of last week's passage. And now Jesus says a word to them. This faith that you're putting in me, you need to realise what that faith is going to have to be. It's not just kind of a positive feeling towards me. It's not kind of just a phase of life or a momentary thing. The kind of faith that you're going to put into me, if it's going to count, is going to be a lifelong commitment to my word, a lifelong commitment to the word that I speak to you, a word that is primarily about me. That word is going to shape you. From here on, that's the kind of faith you need to have. And if that is the way that your life lives from here, then you really will be my disciples. And you will find that my word gives you the truth, and that truth will set you free. And here there are two big claims. On the one hand, Jesus is saying that his word is going to do something, which means that he's saying that he's able to do something. If his word's able to do it, then he must be able to do it. And he's also making a claim about them that they need what he has to bring them. That there is something unpleasant and nasty about them that they need saving from. And those two claims are locked together. And this is why the debate erupts. It's an equation where you have to solve the entire thing as a single act. You can't break it up into bits and solve this bit and then use that to solve this bit or solve that bit to be able to solve this bit. You solve all of it or you solve none of it. You either have to accept what Jesus says about you because you accept what he says about him, or if you're going to accept what he says about him, you have to accept what he says about you. It's a chicken and egg. You can't break out of it, you can't start it somewhere, the whole thing arises together, which means you either accept what he says as a total thing or you reject all of it, lock, stock and barrel. It is an aspect of things that is just part of life, but here is just in a whole different note. All of us are used to, if we drive in any way, the idea of blind spots. That when you're driving, there is just a section around you in the car that you cannot see what is there. No matter how much you try, you can't see it. That the best you can try and do is kind of keep track over time as to where all the cars are and just pray no one's invented a teleportation device to kind of just teleport directly into that spot that you can't see into. And then when it's time to move out into the lane, you just take it on trust that you've got the calculations right in your head, there's nothing in that space, and you pull out. And most of the time, you're right. And every so often, you get a horn blast and someone's just shaking their head at you as though you're a complete idiot. What were you doing trying to cause a collision? And very occasionally, it's not a horn blast, but there was a collision. It's the problem of blind spots. You can't actually see the space. There's no way to do it. If you really want to make sure, it you've got to get someone else to look there for you because you can't see it. And it's not just driving, it's life as well. All of us find that at points in our lives, we do all the maths, we check our motives, we look at the calculations that we did, we look at our behaviour, and we give ourselves a clean bill of health. We were perfectly justified in that action. And then friends or family or whatever else, either strongly or gently do a minor intervention and inform us that everyone around us is shaking their heads at us. What to us is just obviously right is to everyone else obviously wrong. And I know as I say this, every one of you, like me, is saying, that's not me. But almost all of us know someone in your life for whom you know that shoe fits. That there is someone in your life for whom they just keep doing stuff. And the thing that traps them in it is that they will not listen to other people when other people tell them that their behaviour is actually inappropriate or wrong. They can't access it themselves. They need someone else to tell them. But to do that, they have to trust the other person to be able to tell them, and they have to be prepared to actually accept some bad news about themselves. And that is a hard ask for human beings. Human beings hate that level of vulnerability. Human beings hate the sense that there may be a blind spot that shapes us that we can't control and that we're dependent on others. It's not helped by the fact that there are those out there that maliciously make use of this to prey on people. Cults and con artists that try and get inside people's head and go, listen to me, I've got it, and then just completely throw them upside down. But often in life, the trick is to be able to know to listen to the right person that can tell you something about yourself that you cannot see for yourself, but you actually need someone else to see and show you. And whenever that happens, it's tense and it is tough. And this passage here this morning is that on steroids, because Jesus is saying human beings have a huge blind spot, enormous. That just shapes everything about us, and only Jesus can tell us about it, and only He can fix it. My word will give you the truth, and that truth will set you free. The implication is you're not free now, which means you're slaves. And so we get the first pushback from His audience. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you possibly say we need to be set free? Here they're playing the kind of English patriot card, Britain's never ever shall be slaves kind of deal. We're Israelites, we're free people. It's part of what it means to be an Israelite. It's just part of our DNA there's an obvious kind of response to that that Jesus could have done. Remember being in Egypt when you were slaves to Pharaoh? Remember when you asked for a king and you were told that having a king would effectively make you slaves? Oh, and by the way, Roman Empire, you're hardly exactly free at this point in time, guys. But Jesus doesn't go anywhere there while those would be points. They're kind of beside the point. The real issue is their claim that they belong to Abraham. We're Abraham's descendants. And behind that is a whole bunch of freight. Abraham was given the promises of God. Abraham is the friend of God. Abraham is in with God. And he, our heritage goes to him, which means we're right, mate. She'll be right, mate. We're fine. We don't need to be freed. And so Jesus' response kind of unpacks from there in verses 34 to 38. He accepts, yes, you are Abraham's descendants. No question on that one, guys. But implicitly, he says, that's kind of beside the point. Yeah, I get that you're actually his physical descendants, but that's not the point here. The point here is your actions. Your actions reveal who you really are, and they reveal where you really stand. And there are two fundamental problems with your actions that show that your connection to Abraham kind of pointless first is that you sin your lives are shabby you do stuff that's just morally wrong no one looking at you would go we need to find someone who could act as a template for human goodness a human being that everyone could look to when they weren't exactly sure what it looks like to be a good human being i'll pick you because you clearly are that person none of us are that person all our lives are shabby none of us have the capacity to stand up and say you want to know what it looks like to be a really good human being look at me i'm the very model of a modern major general so to speak i kind of epitomize it and jesus point is if you sin you are a slave to sin If your life is shabby, if your life has things in it that are just wrong, then you aren't calling the shots. Evil is calling the shots. What is wrong is calling the shots. You're not in the driving seat. You mightn't be aware of it. The slavery might be in your blind spot, but it is real. If you want it as a thought experiment, try this week not sinning. Knock yourself out. Put your best energies this week into at no point doing anything other than what is perfectly right. And at the end of the week, tell me whether or not you are in control of your own life. Jesus' point is none of us call the shots in our own lives. Sin whistles and we come. It's not a pretty truth, but it is true. But there's a second problem he can observe. And it's the way in which the people are responding to him. He points out that he himself is telling them what is true from God. All he's doing is telling them is what he himself has seen in the very throne room of God. And they can find no place in their lives to hear what he says. At all points, the door to their life and to their heart is barred from the inside They will not take his word on. In fact, their rejection of what he's saying is so strong that they're seeking to kill him. It sounds like this weird thing that comes out of nowhere. But John's expecting us to remember the story right back in chapter 5. From chapter 5 onwards, the Jewish leaders have been seeking and looking for a way to kill Jesus. In chapter 6 and 7, at different points, the crowd recognises this and goes, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? This is kind of common ground between Jesus and the crowd. The rejection of Jesus at this point is so strong, people want to murder him. The kind of people who normally is meant to be actually opposed to murder. And at every point here, Jesus goes, I'm acting out from my true father. And yet your reaction to me shows that you don't have a bar of that. You're actually doing what your father is speaking into your ear. I speak from what I see from my father, and you act from what you hear from your father. And his point is, that is a fateful, fateful situation to be in. If you are a slave, you have no right to be in the household. Slaves rate somewhat lower than an employee, a contract employee or a casual employee. Slaves are effectively property. They exist in the family for as long as they're useful to the family. And then they're sold or disposed of. The only person who has a right to live in the family forever are the sons. Even daughters don't in that time and place. Daughters get married to other families and they join those families. And that's the family that they end up having a right to be in forever. The only ones who actually have a right to remain in their own family forever are the sons. And so Jesus says, I am the Father's son, his one and only eternal son. If I set you free from your slavery, you will have a place in the house of God forever. Whether you're a man or a woman, you'll be a son. You will have a right that will never extinguish to live in the house of God, in the family of God. But because you reject me, you are cut off from the very thing. Thing that will actually deliver you and give you everything that you need but don't realise that you need. This doesn't exactly endear him to them. And so they respond. Our father is Abraham. Don't go insinuating that we have a different father than Abraham. Abraham is our father. And Jesus' response effectively is no. No yes i agree you're his descendants but you're not his children because you don't bear his likeness there is no likeness to abraham in your actions abraham would never do what you do would never react to someone speaking the truth of god the way that you are he's here referring to the kind of thing we're used to that when a child acts a certain way both parents turn to each other and say your child It's not an argument about biology or parentage at that point, it's an argument about likeness and exactly which parents' heritage is kind of on display at that point. And that's either a delightful thing or less delightful, depending on how mileage varies in the situation. His point is the children of Abraham are shown by the way in which they walk in the steps of Abraham. And Abraham, being the friend of God, would never react this way to the son of God. It's just not how he is. And so their actions show that it's not really Abraham that their real father is. Their actions show that their real father is someone else and someone not very pleasant. And at this point, he's completely gotten under their skin. And so their response is, we are not illegitimate. Unlike some people we could mention in this conversation, Jesus our true father, one father, is God. Don't go trying to cut us off from Abraham. Don't go trying to cut us off from God. We're right on those fronts. It's a nasty little thing that they're doing at this point. Jesus, you are the last person in the world who has the right to throw stones about parentage and to try to imply that we don't have Abraham as our father but are effectively are not Jews because there's a big cloud over your birth, mate. As far as we're concerned, you are, the technical term is, a bastard. You've got no right to throw rocks at other people about whose fathers people have. We ultimately can track our heritage back to God himself. And so Jesus drives home the blind spot at this point everything you've claimed about yourselves is wrong. And it can be clearly seen to be wrong. If you belong to God the way that you claim, you would listen to Jesus. Because people who are from God or belong to God listen to God. And the only things that Jesus says are the things that he's seen from the Father that God himself has given him to say and that God himself has sent him to say. He is God's one and only Son, speaking the very things that God the Father commissioned him to say. If you belong to God, you would actually listen to Jesus. The fact that you don't listen to Jesus is itself the proof that your claims of belonging to God are hollow. Jesus here is making it very clear that you cannot have God without Jesus. It doesn't matter about your sincerity. It doesn't matter about your religion. It doesn't matter about how much you pass your own moral test. To have God, you must have Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, that itself is the evidence that you don't belong to God. But Jesus makes it pretty clear that it's not just that they happen to re- reject Him. They won't reject Him and in fact can't reject Him. You're unable to to receive me, because you don't belong to God. Why are they so unable to receive him because of who their father really is? The one whose likeness they actually carry, the one who has imprinted himself so powerfully onto onto them that they actually are his children, is the devil himself. It is some of the blackest descriptions that you have in scripture of the human condition. Your father is the devil. You are diabolic. And your father was a murderer from the beginning. He's referring back to the Garden of Eden, where the devil took delight in enticing Adam and Eve into doing the very thing that would bring death to themselves and all the human race. Killed us and enjoyed it. That's his very nature, is to take life and to delight in the taking of it. He is, in a sense, the ultimate serial killer. And More than just that, he is a lie through and through. The truth has no purchase on him. When he lies, he actually speaks English for him. That's his language that he was born with, so to speak. It's part of his very nature. Every lie we tell Every lie we leave, every bit of deceit that is in the system has just a little bit of his DNA in it. He is the father of lies. And Jesus says, you are completely in your own blind spot at this point. You're not connected to God. You're connected to Satan. The fingerprints of the devil are all over you. And it is really easy at this point for your eye to go, well, yes, they're Jews, what would you expect? have got to realise that John's Gospel is not an anti-Semitic tract. John himself writing it is a Jew. When he's talking about the Jews here, it's not, look at them, aren't they terrible? But if this is true even of the Jews who can track their lineage back to Abraham, what hope have you Gentiles got? If this is true even of the children of Abraham that they are not connected to God that they are slaves to sin that the devil himself is their father that they are unable to take on Jesus word the very thing that would deliver them what hope is there for the rest of us that don't even have that connection can't even put that on the ledger it is a very powerful statement of human beings complete need for Jesus and the fact that that complete need actually cuts us off from Jesus when he's the very thing that could solve us our need actually locks ourselves into ourselves well by this stage he's gotten completely under their skin and so they move from defense to offense they move from the what his claims is about them to what his claims is about them but so you're saying that we're wrong about ourselves on pretty well everything. Well, we're surely we're right about this, aren't we? You're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. And at this point, you can see the maliciousness that's there. It's one thing to raise questions about Jesus' parentage. It's another thing to try and speculate as to who exactly the father might have been and to insinuate that it wasn't a Jew. Where exactly is the evidence or basis for making such a claim? It's just pure maliciousness. And so Jesus doesn't even bother to engage with that side of it, and they don't even bother to raise it again. John mentions it so we can get a taste of just the nastiness of the conversation, but it's not really the key plank of the argument. The key plank is you have a demon. You say that our father's the devil. Well, you're home to a devil, mate. You're completely out of touch with reality. Evil has just in gone, incarnated itself into you. That's who you are, and that's where you speak from. You say, We have the problem. No, we say you have the problem. And Jesus, at this point, calmly does what you do when someone lashes out when you're doing an intervention. He doesn't tweet angrily in the middle of the night, like certain world leaders we can mention. He doesn't get kind of angry and kind of concerned about his own kind of pride or honour. He just calmly points out everything that goes against what they're saying. I don't seek my own honour. I don't run around trying to myself look good. If I did, we wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. At all points, I seek to honour God, my Father. And you only have to have a basic acquaintance with the Gospels to see the point Jesus is making. This is someone whom when he hasn't eaten for 40 days and has said, mate, you've got the power to turn stones into bread, feed yourself, goes, I would rather die than do anything that would remotely cut against the honour and glory of God. At every point, his life, if it's anything, is a God-soaked life that is completely wrapped up with the honour of his father. It's not the actions of someone who is a demon-possessed person by any stretch of the imagination. He talks both here and in the next section about how there's someone else that seeks my glory, referring to God. And at that point, he's pointing to all the miracles, the signs that John has been pointing out to us up to this point in the Gospel evidence after evidence by the finger of god working through jesus of who jesus is not things that jesus put upon himself but things that the father did through him to show who he is evidence and signs he's not demon possessed he's god possessed does a demon deliver people from demons not exactly a career movement career move i suspect if you're a demon up and coming does a demon who serves someone who seeks to murder return life to those who are dead? The, the demons who seek to blight human life, give back sight, give back health, give back limbs, remove leprosy. At what point exactly does anything he has done suggest anything other than he belongs to God? You're talking through your hat, And because they need to hear it, rather than back off, he presses down on precisely the claim that is most offensive in verse 51. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. If he is the son who is able to deliver you from your own father, a father who seeks the death of people, if his word can free you from sin and death comes into the world because of sin, and his word is even able to defeat death itself. His word uniquely has the power to overturn the great reality in human life of death itself. And where there was death, to give the promise, you will always have a place in my father's home, which implies you'll always be alive. His word uniquely is able to give life that transcends death itself. Freedom not just from sin, but freedom from death. And so at this point, they've pretty well lost it. No, it's obviously the case that we're right. You really are a demon. Your claims are utterly absurd. Do you really think you're greater than Abraham because he died? The prophets, because they died. How can you possibly say your word will give life when even Abraham died and that was it you really think you're greater than death the point is you're completely unhinged from reality if you possibly think your word can do this death is the ultimate reality not even Abraham the friend of God could avoid it and so Jesus goes over the same key points It's God who is glorifying me. As his son, I know him in a way that no one else does. And I'm speaking to you what I know with the unique access I have. His implication here is, yeah, death is powerful. I get that. But God is more powerful than death. There is a reality in the cosmos more powerful even than death. It's the one who made everything. And me and him are like that, guys. I'm his son. He sent me. I'm speaking to you what I saw in his throne room. At every point, what I'm telling you comes with the very check being cashed by God the Father himself. My word has the power to do what no one else's word can do. Yeah, Abraham is impressive, but tell you what, Abraham looked forward when he got those promises and he saw that my day would come. And that's what made him glad. Yeah, his promises were great. But what he really rejoiced at was the thought those promises would one day be kept. Yeah, it was pretty cool to have God write out a check. But he knew that one day God would actually cash the check. And that's me. And he was so happy to know that was coming. And this is the point where they just, if they haven't lost it already, it's kind of beyond words at this point you aren't even 50 years old and you saw Abraham to tell us how he was feeling really and Jesus at this point isn't going to evade it before Abraham was I am and it's easy to miss that if you don't know your Old Testament reasonably well when Moses asks for God's name and God gives it to him God says I am who I am And so here is so often in the New Testament, when Jesus makes some statement about being I am, he's not just making a statement that he is in some kind of weird kind of Yoda-like kind of statement, I won't try and do the accent, it's a statement that he's God, the God who spoke to Moses, the God who redeemed Israel from Egypt, the God who gave the promises to Abraham, the God who said, let there be light, that's Jesus. He may not be the father, but he is truly God. And they get it. And you can see how total their rejection is of everything Jesus has said to this point. They pick up stones to kill him. Proving everything that he has said to this point. Precisely the actions of someone who cannot handle the truth. Precisely the actions of someone driven by a murderer. Their reaction to this is to seek to murder. Everything Jesus has said is proven true by their actions. It is simultaneously the most astounding passage and a fairly depressing passage, one on the same thing. Jesus is making the point here that you and I and everyone we know really are in a hole. We are in a situation That we cannot get ourselves out of where for most of us we're not even aware that we're in it and where we react allergically when we're told that we're in it it is a pretty awful place to be in and that is what it means to be a human being jesus also wants us to make it clear to us that he and he alone is able to fix that he and he alone has what it takes to be able to redeem us from it all he can break the hold of sin over our lives he can break the connection between us and the devil he can actually give us the ability to receive him and to be received by God as his own children he can give us freedom and he can give us life and no one else can do it because no one else is the son, no one else is God but here's the kicker Precisely because of the hole that we're in, precisely because of the blind spot that's there, we are unable to take hold of what Jesus offers us. We lock ourselves into the blind spot. And when Jesus comes to us, we push away the hands reaching out to help us. It's one of the most depressing passages in the New Testament. If you sit there sometimes and go, well, if Christianity is true, why do so few people believe? Why do so many people reject? Well, this passage explains why. If you sit there going, well, if it's true, why doesn't God make it easier for people? Why doesn't He sky write John 3.16 in glowing letters? No one could have an excuse then, but right now it's, you know, it's a bit up for grabs, they've got a reason not to do it. This passage explains it. The people that Jesus is speaking to here have seen the miracles with their own eyes. They've heard his teaching and their reaction is to pick up stones to kill him. It's not first and foremost a problem that God hasn't given the evidence. It's first and foremost a problem of ourselves and the way in which we're locked into our own hole. And this is why when you move outside this passage to other parts of John and the Rotten and the like, it talks about how God needs to intervene to give us something so that we can actually escape the hole. Back in chapter 5, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And John chapter 1 talks about how people become children of God not from their own will, but because of the will of God. Later on in John's Gospel, he'll talk about the gift of the Spirit and how the Spirit blows where he wills. Paul will talk about how no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. If at times you go, this is hopeless, I can't get through, I need to pray, this passage explains why that is the right and proper response. The problem that human beings have is one that words by themselves cannot solve, that evidence by itself cannot solve. The problem goes deeper and is more pernicious. We have to ask God himself to liberate people, even so they can receive the liberation ironic as that is. But if that's the stuff from outside this passage, understand what this passage is saying. Jesus's words, the words about Jesus himself, are the means that the Father and the Spirit use to liberate people. When you're in conversation with people that you care about and you desperately want to see them connected to God... This is why at all times you want to try and bring the conversation back to Jesus. Whatever the question is that you're discussing and debating, to the degree that you can do it with any integrity, you want to bring it back to Jesus. Because Jesus' words are the words that can free. Jesus' words are the words that can enlighten. Jesus' words are the words that can give light and life. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who have faith. It's not just the thing that you kind of have to get to, it's the thing that will pull you out if the Father and the Spirit blow upon it and make it powerful. And so it is the resource that we have. And then finally, this is the other thing you need to get from this this morning. Given the nature of the problem that we have, Given the nature of the solution that Jesus offers, it is an all or nothing response to Jesus as the only way forward. This is an equation that you have to solve the whole thing as once or you reject it totally. You either have to go all in, accept everything Jesus says about Himself and everything He says about you and then take that on board and make that the North Star that your life lines up with as you walk forward. Well, you have to reject it completely and sometimes violently. This is not a situation where you can be moderate, where you can weigh it up and just test it out and try the waters. It's a call to be radical and extreme, to put all your eggs in Jesus' basket, nothing out, nothing back, nothing held back. You have to accept the lot to accept any of it. And if you accept a the lot, then it changes everything. You don't live the way you did before. You follow someone who is in the very throne room of God, whose words are able to defeat death, who alone is able to explain yourself to yourself. And if that is the case, everything has changed. And that's the likeness that now marks us. Here again, the words that Jesus says. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. With the weight of those words hanging in the air... um be a great time to go out to morning tea I just need to run through some announcements but I also just want to acknowledge the other thing sitting in the air is a quite large storm and it might be that after this you need to just make a a, a bit of an assessment as to whether you hang around or whether you have to rush off so we won't take it personally if you go you know what